Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Ian Castle. Ian has already been on the show. He has become a friend, and he is most known for small cap and micro cap investing. He is the founder of Micro Cap Club. I think Ian is a very good dude and somebody I enjoy talking to. So there has been some chatter about how small caps are cheap at the moment, and I figured that I would invite Ian on the show to get his take, and I think that we had a good conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by Stratosphere.io. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. I pulled up Stratosphere just now. I was looking at one of Lawrence Hamtill's tweet, giving a shout out to at Heart of the Sea on Twitter. There's a underscore on between of and the in that handle. Anyway, Heart of the Sea put out a nice note on AutoZone. You can find it at canuckanalyst.substack.com and highlighted that it is a business and industry that has declining parts, but pricing is going up. And I said, you know what? I wonder what AutoZone's KPIs on stratosphere.io would look like. And what do we have? We got segments and KPIs broken down into failure revenue, maintenance items revenue, discretionary revenue, auto parts stores revenue, other revenue, auto parts stores segment profit, and other segment profit. All right. So that's the kind of thing that you can find on Stratosphere should you sign up for the KPIs. If you choose to do that, use the promo code BREW for a 15% off code. I like Stratosphere, I think it's a great prosumer product. And I hope that some of y'all that have tried it out for free, that's F-R-E-E, have enjoyed it as well. Thank you to Braden and his team for sponsoring the show. And again, that's stratosphere.io, S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. And with that out of the way, none of this is investing advice. All of the information contained in this program is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making financial decisions and do your own due diligence. Thanks for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, Ian Castle's back. What's happening, man? Not much. Just, uh, you know, everyday volatility. Yeah, yeah that's, that is true. I, uh, right before this started, I was doing some cash management and merger arb, and uh, you were on the, the video. Hopefully, I didn't buy the wrong security. Um, the... Uh, how do you, how do you stay patient in the liquid stuff? Like this thing's going to move away from me. I know it just from the order. How do you like want I it takes a real level of discipline to not chase stuff, especially in the uh liquid micro cap land. No, it it really is, and especially when you have especially when you're starting a new position and you want to get to a certain position size and you, know, you want to remain disciplined, like you said, and and you don't know if you're going to be able to get a full position or get a quarter of that position or a tenth of that position or one percent of that position until you put that order in. Yeah, um, you know, and and it, and it is incredibly difficult. The nice thing about illiquid, small, you know, tilt my way towards the growthier end of the bucket is, you know, if they execute, you have a long way to run. You yeah. Know? So you can't you can't be afraid to average up. You know, once the fundamentals you know show that it's worthy of averaging up. You know, and so that's that's one of the ways you get around that. It's just um, in small stuff. You know, when it works, and you find a management team that can execute 
um, you know, you're going to have other opportunities and you can't be afraid just to, to take an offer, you know, when you see execution. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess uh, my head tells me I should probably consider like mitigating some of that risk by uh, being smaller in the beginning, right? And then as the execution, as as trust builds, maybe, maybe uh, buy more. And I suspect... Like, uh, I'm going back to the episode with Bob Rabati when he said liquidity tends to manifest itself when earnings start to like come through, right? Then, then people yeah. actually want to buy, and, and then you can probably actually get to like a full position, uh, exactly. when you want to. Yeah. And especially with illiquid kind of smaller companies, and, and you know, illiquidity is in the eye of the beholder. You know, you can have an illiquid large cap too, but you know, for prim- primarily talking about illiquid small businesses. You know, generally, you know, when the stock, when management executes, the stock goes up, liquidity increases. So, you know, normally like the amount of dollar volume that trades after a stock goes up, you know, doubles, triples, probably goes up 20 or 30 X. So yeah. you're, you know, the, you just have to be careful because, you know, illiquidity doesn't bother you, but you just need to make sure you're going to be right. You know, because if you're right, liquidity takes care of itself because the liquidity will get, will increase as the stock goes up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um. What's going on microcap land? What's going on in uh, the microcap club? I'm getting a lot of emails. It seems like uh, there's a lot of like posts. People are uh, sharing what they own. It seems like the community is vibrant. How's that going after last year? I think it's going pretty pretty good. I mean, I'm kind of the latest thing is um, we have our summit kicking off September of this year. It's our first in person summit, you know, since 2019. So I'm excited about bringing the community together, you it's know, be in fun. person. For the first time in three years so it's i'm excited about that and excited about our speakers that we have we have connor haley brian bears um our good friend jake taylor um you know and so we have a we have a good breadth of of speakers and lineup they're going to be there and also ryan pape from expel he's going to be there presenting um it might be a q a with me and him but oh for real know, yeah so he's going to be there as well and so it's not not too often you get to to sit and listen to a a CEO that was around a company when he started with it at 23 cents that took it to a hundred dollars per share. Uh, and now it's back down to 67, but still not bad. I so. do. I still have time to sign up for this. Yeah, you do. We, <laughs> I'm a big fan of scarcity in my investing and also like creating scarcity with this event too. But we have, we kind of geared it towards 80 slots, you know, 80 yeah. slots only. Um, and the reason we did that, maybe to backtrack a little bit more our our event isn't sponsor supported it isn't issuer supported which means we have to front the full bill of the hotel you know for having the event and it's about about six seven hundred dollars a person just costs to put a two-day event on yeah you know at a at a mid-level hotel in chicago uh so you know the the price to do that you know the registration fee to 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 start out of the gate and we started a little bit higher this year um and so, you know, we basically started at 300, went to four or five, six, and now it's at 700, which is basically our, at our cost. And so I'll let a few more people register above the 80 mark. We sold out in about 48 hours. Yeah. But, um, but right. yeah, I'm excited about it. Well, I will follow up and pay you immediately because uh, <laughs> I, I, that's, that's a group I would love to listen to. That's a, that's a well, very that's like, cool group. That's what I wanted to do. It's like I, I want to scratch the itch of, of different areas. You know, number one, you have, a really top-notch emerging manager in Connor Haley that's, you know, I think his name's well-known throughout the investing world now. Um, 
you know, and, and has a, a long runway ahead of him. And then you have Brian Bears, who kind of, you know, wrote the book on kind of small stocks in the in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s when he started his fund and now manages several billion. Um, and I'll probably have some sort of Q&A or a roundtable with them just talking about, you know, how they view micro caps, small caps, managing a fund, you know, all that type of thing. And then I also wanted to have uh, Jake, you know, because I think his tool for journalistic could be very applicable to any type of stock picker you yeah. know, um, that, that he's created. And I wanted, to, I wanted to have a platform for him to be able to showcase that because I do think it is valuable. You know, and then last but not least, having a CEO founder that built a business, you know, from 10 million to several hundred million that have 100x the stock price, just learning from that person you know, yeah, what man. that takes to do. That's sick. So, That's like a legit lineup. Yeah. Now, the, the main goal in our lineup of speakers every year is to make people think, what? why are these people presenting at a penny stock? that's the that's the reaction i want so that's that's the goal every year (laughs) yeah well it's uh i mean obviously microcap is full of penny stocks and whatnot but you tend to you look i mean you know i've talked to you for long enough you're not looking for like uh you're looking for real businesses that no one else has found yet so yes yeah no absolutely you know i know that you found one recently and we don't need to talk about it or or you can if you want to um but i am curious to hear like how did you come across uh, that name and management team? And like, how did that, how did, how does, how does an idea like that develop? You know, like what's the germination of uh, an Ian Castle good idea that gets, that gets Ian Castle excited to get out of bed in the morning? Cause you, you see plenty of pitches on stuff that I, I'm sure you're like, no, 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 no. You know, when, when do you get excited? You know, it's a, it's a good question. I might take two steps back to that because I think it's a question that we all, kind of get asked and at least i get asked is like how do you find a great company how do you find a, a microcap stock that's worthy of holding you know and i and and i think you know the, to to invert that is you have to first know what you're looking for you know because what you're looking for bill might be different than what i'm looking for you know because the same flavors of investing in mid cap and large cap are also prevalent in microcap. i mean you can find deep value stocks value stocks growth biotech ong you know, cyclicals, you can find all those flavors of investing down in microcap. Um, you know, you can find, you know, you have people chasing 52-week lows, finding deep value at 52-week highs, chasing growth, and you have GARP in the middle. You know, you have all those things, the same thing. You know, and for me, you know, what I like to do is just like let people know how I invest and what I'm looking for, because that will help them understand, you know, why, why I identify and how I identify things and situations. Maybe a good place to start is, and this came up in my annual letter for the, for the fund that I manage now is, you know, I get asked when you look for companies, you know, obviously the last 18 months has been a, a trialing period for microcap and small cap stocks. There's plenty of names that are down 60, 70, 80%. You know, there's companies that were a billion market cap two years ago that are now sub hundred million. Um, and so one of the questions that I think comes up is, you know, during the last 18 months, you know, I'm sure you've found a lot of new opportunities because the market's been volatile, the market's come down a lot. Um, and I think in general, generally that could be true, but for me, the way I invest, I kind of put things into two camps. You're either going after fallen angels or rising stars. I kind of put it into two buckets and those fallen angels, those companies that were the billion dollar market caps of yesteryear you know, that are now down 70, 80%, you know, you can definitely find opportunities in them. I'm just not, I'm kind of biased against those opportunities. And 
I'm more geared towards trying to find the up and coming rising star, the new idea. And that could be a transformation from an old name, uh, an old business, a new management team takes it over or something like that. But I'm generally geared more, more towards finding new things. So a fallen angel that has like a true catalyst that people aren't appreciating yet would still would def would could be defined as a rising star to you. Yes, it, even it though it's still, still got that legacy stink. Yeah, it it, it could be. It's, if there's a management turnover, and especially if there's some sort of potentially a rights offering or capital infusion from that new management team showing skin in the game as an inflection, you know that's kind of one of the screens that we do as well as. We don't necessarily screen for fundamentals from a screening standpoint, uh, but we do screen for rights offerings, insider purchases, anything that triggers oh, skin in the game and a transition point in a business. And that that kind of lets us sit up a little bit more in the chair and pay attention to what's going on. Um, Interesting. I have a, a non-gap would be proud of me. I, I now I do not look at an idea without reading the proxy first. I'm like, if I don't like the incentives, I don't even care what the what the idea is, <laughs> which I don't know if oh, that's why no. I may have gone too far. But no, I mean, I, I think you're I think you're right in doing that. I mean, listen, like it's all about trying to find the management teams that you can trust. I mean, that's what building conviction is. I mean, if we want to think about and we're all trying to do this, listen, we're all trying to find and hold stocks that can go up 100, 500,000, 10,000 percent. You know, that is the goal. And there's really kind of three primary ways to to hold a multi-bagger, you know, it's great to identify one. It's great to say, oh, I met that CEO 10 years ago, but unless you held it, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah. unless you bought it and hold, you know, and so there's kind of three primary ways you hold a multi-bagger. You have kind of the coffee can method, which I would kind of put as active coffee canning, which would be kind of a David Gardner approach where you put a lot of work in the front end, uh, you position size small, and you take the selling part out of the equation. You know, you're just trying to find things that you can buy and forget. You do front end work to it and you just let it run and run and you're fine with things going to zero. I was you know? just so walking around thinking about him. Is that weird? That might be a little weird. But I was thinking the other thing that I like about his approach is he starts to double down on the winners. And when you look at the math of like how that strategy works, it works by riding the winners. Right. So yeah. he's betting as it's working. And you have to have just a obviously a long-term time horizon with that type of approach, you know, too. And it's, it gets harder. Also uh, helps to have subscription income. Yeah. I mean, yes, it does. It helps subscription income. And it's, it's a great way to, to have a newsletter too, if you don't have to worry about telling people to sell. Yeah. Um, but you know, kind of the second way would be, but I think he believes in it. I'm not trying to like, I, I'm not trying oh, to cut no, you no. off, but you know, like I think I, I, I uh, it's funny, I was watching Twitter today, uh, like something on Twitter today. The Daily Show had a clip, and the guy said, unless you're going to tell me your whole financial uh, situation, I don't know that I want to hear your your like ideas on a stock to pick, right? It was, it was sort of like, he was talking about Kevin O'Leary and retail following him in. And uh, I think that's an important insight, but uh, I don't like... Um, I mean, one of the one of the reasons that I like David so much is like I, I think he believes in it. And then I think he thought, how can I create a business out of what I believe in? And then he like, you know, like his version of anti-fragile is different than Buffett's. But they're both like, I, I mean, David's probably a little more pro-cyclical because you get more cancellations when the market goes down. But I, I don't know. I just I like how he structured his life. Smart guy. No, he is smart. But I think he, he does believe what he's doing. And I think his approach does work. 
kind of growthier, larger cap end of the bucket to hold, yeah. you know, like that. You just, you just have to be willing to go through contraction periods like the last 18 months when it doesn't matter if the business is performing with multiple goes from 30 times sales to five, you know, you just have to be able to weather that, weather that storm. Yeah, that's storm. right. And that's, that is yeah. not an easy storm. That's not. You know, I love, I love Buffett's the people like cite like Buffett. Oh, you should want your stock to go down here. Here's the other um, addendum to that. The stock is not going to collapse without bad stuff going on. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like they're not going to be executing and everything's going in the right direction and the stock falls through the bottom. That's just not how the world works. Well, and, and, and in their businesses too, I mean, they're such cash generative. I mean, if they were, they would be taking advantage of it. Yeah. That's, you know, by eating themselves. Yeah. Um, all right, I didn't right, mean so to divert us. Sorry. No, no, it's it's a good diversion. Um, so you kind of have the David Gardner approach, and then you have sort of the their true buy and forget coffee canning, where you know you put a little bit of money in, you put in such a little amount doesn't really matter, and you forget and throw them in the bed. And in twenty five years, you wake up in a hundred bags, and you didn't weren't even aware of it. You know, yeah, it started off at such a small base, you know, and that's that's kind of another way to hold things. And then sort of the last way is is kind of the way that I do things, and other people do as well. Is what I kind of called conviction investing. And that's really truly trying to understand and know the businesses better than most. And and selling is still part of that strategy. And I think selling will always be part of the strategy in small emerging companies like like microcaps. I think it's I think it's um philosophical and cerebral and stoic to believe that you can find a bunch of hundred million dollar market cap companies and coffee can them and forget them, but you'll be broke. You know, selling is part of the the game. Yeah, um, and I think I think it's important not to fool yourself into, you know, wanting the world to be what you think it should be instead of how it really is. And that's you know, a lot of these businesses, you're even the winners, they'll be held for a season or two, not for thirty years. Yeah, you know, they'll work for two or three years, and then they will stop working. Um, and it's just kind of what are the base rates? You know, look, look at the base rates of this industry. So. As far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm a conviction investor. I'm trying to find my intention with every purchase is to hold for 30 years. But the reality is, is very, very few of these small businesses deserve and earn that right to be held for 30 years. Yeah. I, I One of the reasons I, I like talking to you, other than the fact that I think you're just like a great guy, uh, is like you, you, I think you call balls and strikes like you see them. And, uh, you know, I pinged you after... Uh, some of the the small is cheap stuff and uh and you came back and you're kind of like well i think it it depends on what kind of investor you are and i think that's indicative of the market i think like high quality right now is not particularly cheap i don't know that it ever deserves to get that cheap i mean if it's truly high quality um but you know there's a lot of stuff out there that you know, I like lumber liquidators is trading at like half a tangible book, but you got to, you know, management teams incentivized to grow operating income and like you need an activist and I don't know that it's worth the time. Like I, so it's just kind of interesting to yeah. see the dichotomy. No, it is. It's, it's kind of how we started out. There's just so many different ways to invest. And I think that's one of the things, and you're probably the same way, Bill. It's like the longer you invest, the more you realize how many different ways there are to make money. And how different people, how different we are. I mean, you you can probably sit next to another value investor, and yeah, from a distance, that fingerprint looks the same. But when you get up close, you'll see the differences. You know, yeah. and what you're really looking for, and how you buy, and how you sell, and how you hold. You know, the duration is a big part of it too. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and even 
even during unfavorable periods. I mean, you have, you know, a really unfavorable period for deep value, uh, which I know you and, you and Toby and Jake like to riff on, you know, previously, maybe outside of the last 12 months, but, you know, but then you still have a, um, a Michael Melby of Gate City Capital who was up like a thousand percent in a deep value portfolio basket of stocks. Yeah. You know, you still have these people that are crushing it even in that world, which always fascinates me. You know? Yeah. I gotta, I gotta meet that guy. Um, Evan Tyndale, uh, you know, uh, he, he's, you know, we'll see. Yeah, he's crushing e- it. Everybody, everybody, uh, has runs. And I think Evan would be the first to tell you probably never put together a run like he just did. But, um, it's neat because he he's objectively like a value guy, uh, and it's nice to see him succeed because I think he's got a, a solid process. You know, on on value after hours, I think the only thing that uh, I, I've actually I'm I've taken a, a break from it. Uh, I, I think I'm still going to come on uh, occasionally, but not regularly. Uh, one because I don't have much left to say, um, but two, like I, it's just like one of those things. Value is either going to work or it's not. You know, like if if uh, the future is like the past, value is going to work, and if it's not, it's not. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much there is to say about it. Well, and it's kind of like how do you define value? And obviously, I think people today define value as just buying a business for less than it's worth. You know, yeah. compared to just pure gram type of value, deep value investing. But um, yeah, I think it's it's oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I think. Um, the the one thing that i that i think is uh it was written on microcap club the guy that wrote about how uh i'm almost certain it was written on microcap club about how like capital is attracted to scarcity did you read that article <laughs> wait, wait which which one was it i don't know man i'll i'll send it to you after and i'll link it in the show notes i love the way that okay. he said it and and it's de- I think it's definitely true. I think it's definitely true. That's how my mind works. Um, I think it's definitely true in non-cash flow producing assets that you know scarcity wins. Uh, and I and I do I, I have come to believe more and more that like durable businesses that are high quality actually are scarce and and probably do deserve capital to come in over time like the incremental buyer i kind of understand now i i know you know valuation matters but i i i just wonder if there's not a you know 0.1 percent that actually is the outlier that it 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 doesn't actually matter all that much i mean that's that and it might have been you know it might have been our i wrote on scarcity quite a bit in a few articles of microcap club because it's probably one of the more fundamental things that i look for in the businesses that i invest in is truly trying to find those unique businesses, those one of one businesses that just happen to be publicly traded that are small, you know, which are really hard to find. It's like, you know, for example, you know, I'm not interested in finding another UCAS company, you know, another company that's there's 50 or hundred other publicly traded companies that are in that space, just marketing their product or service a little bit different, you know, yeah. trying to get, trying to get share that way. It's like, you really want to find like those really unique one of one businesses that you you combine scarcity with a tailwind of sentiment, consumer sentiment or consumer demand, whatever the case may be. Um, You know, and that's how you want to find those Picassos where everybody's kind of going after that, those 10 pieces of artwork. And that's the biggest propellant of overvaluation and of price. You know, I'm going to find something that's undervalued that can get overvalued, Hmm. you know, and 
it doesn't mean that you're trying to play a pump and dump. It just means that you're trying to find great businesses early because there's great businesses always traded at premium because there's a scarcity of them. Yeah. You know, there's just not, not many of them. So I think scarcity and also combining that growth and, and that barbell of growth and survival, you know, and the survival part is the balance sheet part. Yep. You know, can it survive through a recession? You know, and that's tough to find in small cap and micro cap companies as well is really a balance sheet that can endure, you know, and, and be aggressive and a leader that can act with aggression with the capital that's on the balance sheet at the right time, hmm. you know? So it's a, so it's a combination of all, all of those things. And, you know, the kind of frameworks that I try to find, at least for my type of investing is combining that scarcity and survival, trying to find a business that can grow through a recession, which is a very tough hurdle a balance sheet that can endure intelligent fanatic leadership and an evaluation where you can at least see fundamentally that you can double your money in three years or a 25% cake or, you know, a fundamental, you know, not a pump, not a story, yeah. but fundamental growth in that business over three, four, five years. Yeah. And the reason I, 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 I think the reason that can get overvalued is how many other opportunities do you have out there like it like once people find that that's the only one that they have right like like your UCAS yeah. example okay you could be the best and I don't know where UCAS trades but let's use book value as as uh you know an imperfect proxy by the time that you get to 1.1 times book there's something else that's trading at 0.6 book you might as well just sell that and then buy the peer that's cheaper because they're not really all that different mm-hmm uh, whereas like if you have something truly scarce, there is only one. No, exactly. And there, and it's really hard to find, but you know, kind of going back, there's been a few episodes over my experience that kind of led me down the path of kind of the tailwind scarcity. And, and one of them was a, uh, probably a, the more, most pure way to kind of illustrate scarcity and tailwinds is there was a company, I think it was back in 2011, no, it was 2010. It was right before Facebook went public. And so it was the only publicly traded social um, media company at the time. It was, called a, it was a Latino social network called K-Pasa, which then turned into Meet Me, which was actually acquired a couple of years ago. Yeah. But back then, it was the only publicly traded social network. And I was kind of looking at this thinking there was buzz brewing about Facebook going public and other social media assets going public. Um, there's institutional interest, obviously, in this area. And so, you know, I, I met the management team. I ended up buying some stock and it was around a dollar, dollar fifty. And sure enough, over the next 12 months leading up to the IPO of Facebook, the stock went from a dollar to 14. Wow. You know, and, and it mainly was just institutions needed to get into this area. And there was only one way to play it at that point in time. Interesting. And, and that was more of a momentum move. You know, as soon as some more assets went public, you know, that stock went down and, and cratered back to two or three dollars. But there was this momentum type move where it kind of showed what scarcity can do when everybody's when you have that fire hose pointed at like one thing. Yeah. You know, what it can do. Isn't that wild how the market works that way? Yeah. And I'm not generally trying to find things like that anymore. You're trying to find kind of that similar dynamic, but in a high quality small business that's uniquely positioned. Yeah. Why, um, why are so many, uh, well, I, sh I don't know that this is supported by statistics, but it's, it's a feeling, uh, why are so many, um, small caps like medical related 
or or a, research like medical research related they need to go public to keep raising money or something like that yes yeah yeah i mean i think i think predominantly you know most of the ipos at least here in the us seem to be life science companies that need to raise money to complete a phase 1 phase 2 trial phase 3 whatever you name it you know it's mainly toward they need they need to raise capital yeah and when you get into other geographies like Australia, you have that. In Canada, you have that. But you actually have more breadth of different types of real businesses going public that are small, which is why it's been more important over the last 10 or 15 years to not be kind of landlocked here in the U.S., but to look north of the border, you know, to look in Australia, you know, look other places. Yeah, the UK. Yeah, just because our kind of public market system for bringing small companies public is kind of somewhat broken it's not broken in other areas. Yeah. Know? And so if you can if you can go to another place that has, you know, it's English speaking, similar accounting roles, you know, you have some comfort level that uh, in that area, you know, that's probably one of the biggest areas I've evolved to over the last call it 10 years. It's just looking outside the US for for ideas because you can you can find a company listed in Australia. I mean, listen, Expel, even though it was mainly a US company, it was listed in Canada. Yeah. You know, there's one of our companies that we own is Australian listed, but it's a global business, you know? So it, just because it's listed in that country doesn't mean it's whatever they, they sell or produce or service is just in that country. You know, it's, you can find global businesses. Yeah. I, I wonder if, um, part of me thinks that if they're smart enough to go about it that way, uh, it's, that's like a reasonably decent indication. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe that thought can get in trouble because there's probably a lot of schmucks that do the same, but, um, you know, that's, that's smart. You're, you're reducing the cost, reducing the reporting requirements. Like I can, I can understand why there are valid reasons to go public that way. And it's like a smart capital allocation decision, I would think. And it's, well, the shame of it is you and I both being Americans is it's actually easier to raise money in some of those other parts of the world than it is here in the U S and that's the shame of it, Hmm. given how robust our capital market systems are here given the amount of people, the amount of money in the United States, when you can actually go and raise money easier, not because you found a bunch of lemmings that'll write you a check, but because it's actually structurally easier to raise money in Canada. It's structurally easier in Australia because when you go and raise money, they actually halt the stock for two weeks. They don't let market manipulators manipulate the stock down 20 or 30%, huh. then to price it then the price at 30% lower and all of a sudden you're doing a 60% in the whole capital raise like you do here in the US. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's these other mechanisms in these other parts of the world that just raise money just a lot. It's just a lot smarter than here in the US. If I'm a micro cap company um, and I want to go out and raise $10 million, that stock will probably be manipulated down 30% before it ever gets priced, just because pe- people are aware of it, shorts are aware of it. It's funny how the whispers get out. And then all of a sudden, it just is a really bad, you know, cost of capital by the time you actually raise equity. Yeah, that's a shame. Like in Australia, as soon as you think about it, they halt the stock. Huh? Like so, there's no there's no manipulation of the stock down to where you have to do an awful deal. You very rarely see deals in Australia actually have warrants either. You know, it's just straight, straight equity. It's usually like a slight discount to market, and it reopens and it starts trading again. Huh. Um, and it, and that's the way it should be over here. You know, and it, and it it's kind of ridiculous that the U.S. is the way it is when it comes to this. I think that would increase the amount of small companies going public and staying public and want to be public as small companies as well. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, the other thing that I that I 
I mean, I, I saw a situation like that last year with a, with a rights offering and, you know, some people were pinging me and they're like, what do you think of this? And the stock's going down. I don't know that I want to, you know, participate in the rights offering. Cause look at how weak the stock is. And it's like, guys, I don't know what to tell you. Right. But that, but it, it becomes this like self-fulfilling mechanism where, uh, I don't know anyone that's got anyone that's got any weekends or whatever gets kind of shaken out. And, and it, it is, isn't it? it's not beneficial to the company raising or the current shareholders. Yeah. Now, and it's, it's just a, it's a shame how the game is played here in the U S and, um, a position that I own just went through this scenario just two months ago where, you know, they started the process with a, with a small cap bank, which everybody would, would know the name if I mentioned it. And they started the process of uh, the two week process. Um, they said, yeah, we'll raise you this amount at this price. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, signed it to be underwrite at that point in time, but basically the last, the last hour they said, oh, and by the way, we want to do it instead of a 12% discount, we want to do a 30% discount with a whole warrant, which would completely like destroy the cap table of the company, yeah. you know, took out, took out common shareholders to the woodshed. Um, and the CEO said, no, we're not going to do that. And in the meantime, the stock came down, you know, while these discussions were happening, he had to cancel that contract with that bank, sign up another one. And then it got priced 12% below that. And it looks like a bad deal when there's all these crazy shenanigans going on behind the scenes, you know, of people positioning, people shorting, people, whatever, manipulating. And it just increases the cost of capital, you know, for the company tremendously. It's a, it's kind of a broken system we have for raising capitals as microcap companies here. Dude, 12 to 30% discount is a big difference. Yeah. And, the CEO, when I talked to him, he, he asked the the lead banker there of that company, like he said, how many CEOs would say, okay, let's do it? And he said, 90%. Wow. Like 90% would be like, yeah, we'll take the money. You know, huh. It doesn't matter if it didn't matter if we would take it from 50 million shares out to 100 million doing like just an awful deal that planted that stock lower probably for a year. Yeah. You know, they would have still done it to get the capital because they're up against the wall, you know? And so it's, it's a shame that's the way it, has to be. And so, like I said, like in Canada, like you, you know, their, their ability to raise 10 million in an overnight at the market or Australia where they just halt the stocks. So there's no manipulation. So you don't have to worry about that. It's just a smarter way to go about raising capital. I'll tell you what's crazy about that is, uh, you know, we've got that pro those problems here. And meanwhile, you know, some of the SPACs that got floated and the crypto stuff, like it's wild how you can get certain things done, but then other things that, uh, Maybe legit, you can't. Yeah, I mean, and, and it depends if it's in vogue or not. Like, listen, nobody, everybody was, not everybody, but a, a lot of people were okay with SPACs as long as they were going up, you know? But yeah. then when things start going down, you start looking into the contracts of those SPACs and you and you understand like, hey, there's, there's founder level shares, there's sponsor level shares, there's sponsor of the sponsor level shares. And then there's 20 million warrant overhang at a, a strike of 1150. And you're wondering why the stock doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, like, like everyone has cheap stock, and there's a boatload of warrants as you're as you're stealing. It's like, and you're wondering why these stocks don't go up or go anywhere because it takes. On top of that, ninety five percent of the spacs are seeking unprofitable businesses. Yeah, so you know, so it's just the spiral, and so the ones that have worked have been companies that are actually profitable that went public, um, but even then, it takes two or three years for those stocks to actually get above like 10 or $15 per share because of all that 
really low price stock that was placed with founders, sponsors, the warrant overhang that has to be eaten through. Yeah. You know? So it just takes two or three years. Yeah. You get a lot of dilution on the com. Yeah. Right. Yeah. These are the ones that work in the SPAC world. They're profitable businesses that they act quickly to clean up the cap table. They'll do like a, a conversion with those warrant, with the warrant overhang. Be like, all right, let's just get rid of these things. Let's give you a 0.1 ratio or 0.25 ratio. Turn, convert that into common just to get rid of it um, to clean it up. Oh, so interesting. That, yeah. And that can usually spearhead the equity being able to go higher quicker. So what they'll, they'll go to the Warren holders and say, uh, you know, if we remove three warrants, we'll guarantee you a dollar today, common stock. And you're, you're removing some of the overhang. The Warren holder wants to do it because they're guaranteed to get some money instead of sort of holding potentially a worthless option. And then, then the, the analysis gets a lot easier. Is that what, it, what you're saying? Is. Because a lot of, you know, a lot of these companies, as an example, like they'll have 20, 30 million shares outstanding, but then there's like another 12 to 15 million warrants yeah. right there yeah, that's right. at 11. So, so they'll go to those people and be like, let's convert your warrant into 0.2 common. Huh. And so you'll take, take the dilution from 13 million down to two and a half. Yeah. Completely clean. It's cleaned up. Um, and then you have a cleaned up cap table that can start to work. Yeah, um, but even like the ones you know of the 500 spacs that have gone public, there's like 26 that are above the price of 10. If you look, you'll see that commonality of you know probably 90 percent of them were profitable. It's it's UTZ, you know, a company like that that was profitable name brand that actually just happened to go public as a spac that you know was fundamentally good business that also did these conversions either through cashless exercise of the warrants or through conversions into equity that then allowed the, the equity to finally go up. Yeah. Huh. I think there's a, I think there's a middle ground there, you know, once somebody actually has the, the capital or wherewithal, I don't think SPAC's a bad way to go public, but I think they just need to get rid. There needs to be one less standard deviation of sliminess. Yeah. And then it can maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, yeah, I, I've come to, um, appreciate the validity of SPACs. I, I used to think that they were completely a waste and now are not a waste, but like, bad for shareholder or you know minority shareholders now i think like any ipo they're probably not great but i think there's maybe more merit in them that i used to uh i used to appreciate i'm even all that just said it's like it's a it's a place that i kind of like to to look sometimes at as well just because it's so hated of a vehicle of an area you know and, and you're still going to find some decent businesses businesses that decide to go public simply because of that business owner that's merging with that SPAC just doesn't have the relationships or wherewithal to know that they could have gone public or raised capital in other ways. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's not always a bad, awful thing. You know, it's just, um, just the way it is sometimes. So it's good to keep your eyes open. But then, uh, then you're kind of closer to the fallen angel category, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to be. <laughs> Although a SPAC Usually, is uh... maybe a fallen devil. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, usually these things just kind of like they they pop up because in the first few months there's barely any float to the equities, so you see these things YOLO, uh, like a Lunar L U N R that did it what two three weeks ago from ten to seventy. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that. And so, so what happens is, um, especially now, man, owning the warrants on that would be nice. They don't react 
as much as you would think. It makes sense because somebody's yeah. like, this doesn't make sense, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't re- like like the warrants on that. Like the, the equity goes 10 to 70. The warrants on that, I think, went from 60 cents to a dollar. Oh, interesting. Okay. The market's smart. Yeah. It, they, they know. And they know if they wait five days, it'll be, the equity will be back down to 15. Yeah. yeah so, um, but yeah, but but it's interesting right now for the SPAC world. There's a lot of these SPACs that call it YOLO in the first two or three weeks simply because there's no float. Because everybody that invested in that SPAC originally when they raised money, whether it's a hundred or five hundred million dollar type SPAC, those investors are in it. And then they're brought the deal. They vote yes or no if they want to remain in the deal. Ninety-five percent of these investors are just pulling their capital out. Yeah. You know, and so what's left is the float of the stock. And so you'll have like these really, really low float situations, as you know, that traders like to pile into because make momentum moves. Yeah. Um, and that, that's why you're seeing a lot of these momentum moves in stocks uh, that just despacked because there's just no float there. And they huh. can be manipulated. How new is this? Have you seen this in the in the past? Like, is this uh, this tight float trading deal? Is this something that is... Uh as old as time, but we're all paying attention to for the first time, or is this like a new phenomenon? I think the low float illiquidity aspect has always been there. And I, but I think it's been, I don't know, use the term worse or better, whatever you want to call it, but it, it's definitely increased due to the kind of the meme stock episode. And now, you know, this, it just seems to be happening more. Yeah. So I, I think it has increased. Um, What's interesting is when you find companies that actually take advantage of it and they're actually smart and taking advantage of it. Yeah. Have an at the market or whatever, and they'll just be issuing shares. It's genius. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We we saw that a couple of times in the last three or four years where it was a company with really no fundamental business that was able to raise a billion dollars in an ATM over the course of a year or two. And all of a sudden they've been able to raise their way to a fundamental business model. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of, it's crazy. I don't even hate the the companies in that case, right? Like, I mean, it's one of those don't hate the player, hate the game type things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the, and some of them, it's not like they knowingly went into the situation saying, Hey, you know, this stock's going to all of a sudden be, you know, all these traders going to funnel into this stock and I'm going to sell all this equity into them. Like yeah. a lot of this, it just, it just happens. Like, and you know, I, I've had a few positions where it kind of hit a weaker a week, two weeks, three weeks of these traders just piling in. So it's not like the CEO knew anything about it. All of a sudden, it just erupts, you huh. know. And that's why it, that's why it's smart. Unlike three, four years ago, for some of these companies to have an ETM in place, you know, and just in case something stupid like that happens, that they can take advantage of it and put some cash in the balance sheet. Yeah, it, it's almost uh, it's weird. But if I was an advisor to a company, like I mean, like you see with Bed Bath and Beyond right now, but that's there's a sophisticated party, I believe, involved in that. But I, I would say, uh, I'd just be like, just get an at the money registered or whatever, just in case, because who the heck knows? Yeah. yeah, a lot of a lot of companies are doing that now, and that's that's one of the things that's changed quite dramatically in microcap is they were very equity lines or ATMs were frowned upon quite gravely like four or five years ago huh um, why because you could just like throw shares out into the market whenever you could and the structure the sec came down on them pretty hard too but back then you know like the company could like hit the bid yeah you know where the atms of today you can only sell at the offer you can only be 10 percent of 
on the offer. You know, it's like it has to be an offer taken for them to sell. And even at that point, they can only be 10% of the sell volume, huh. you know, okay. in, a, in a given day. So it, which makes sense. It doesn't impact, you know, the shares, you know, if it's going to go higher, it's going to go higher regardless of them selling 10%, you yeah. know, the volume into it. Um, so they're, they're much, they're much better than they used to be. And so you're seeing a lot more companies at least have them in, in place for that very reason, because it is a lower cost of capital. Um, I just had a conversation literally this weekend with a company that, that put one in place for that very reason. It's also a way to block off shares to an institution you know, quite easily and effectively without paying commissions. You know, So the commission on the ATM line is 3% versus 7 or 8% when you're doing a standard you know, deal if you wanted to raise capital. Oh. Interesting. You know, so like you, you approach microcap A and they have an equity line and you want to take a position, you know, and then you're, you want to buy $5 million of the stock. I mean, you can just set up an account with whoever the ATM lines through and they'll block off a, the stock right to you and the company gets a deal done at the market at a low commission. Oh, cost of capital that's well. interesting. Yeah. So you see kind of it being used in, in that way as well today. Huh. I don't have the size to approach companies about block trades, or I am messing in companies that are too big to approach them. Either way, it's not not something I've been familiar with. You you focus on companies that are just too uh, fundamentally pure; they don't have to worry about. That's correct. Like, yes, ATM, yes, so. that's right. The Puritans of the market. Yes, despite uh, by the the non Puritan side of the market was the uh, the MSO idea that did not go so hot, but uh, oh well, it's not over. We'll see how it goes, but, but uh, it's, it it is interesting, and you probably see it in the in your positions too. And I was just journaling about this uh, the other day, but you know, there's usually one or two instances a year where something you own gets to a price you know lower that it's a no brainer buy, you know, where and especially in microcap you find it because of the illiquidity profile of these companies, and um, it never ceases to amaze me. Like there's and and you just have to have conviction because usually that point in time where it's a buy might be minutes, hours, days, not a month or two months. Yeah. You know? And it's it's crazy how quickly it happens and just stupid stuff happens. Um, if you have time for a crazy story, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, man. It, was from, it just happened in February. So one of our, um, one of our long investments uh, – that we're in it trades in australia i kind of mentioned it earlier in the conversation it's a there's a company called cog state and this is no you know nobody should run and buy this stock by any stretch of your imagination this is just used for illustrative purposes that's, that's right what. and and entertainment uh, and information that's it yeah yeah so so cog state is a business that we've owned for about three years right before covid and kind of combining that that tailwinds and scarcity so you know the business itself it is a technology provider um, to clinical trials specifically for central nervous system, central nervous system disease areas. Um, they do cognitive assessments. Okay. And so they're predominantly a pure play onto Alzheimer's R and D and commercialization, which is okay. And, and, and when the, when a company gets an approval, I'm sure they have to use Cogstate's equipment or whatever that was used in testing in perpetuity, more or less, right? They don't. They don't have to. So the core, the core business of Cogstate is actually giving their technology and their services to clinical trials. Those companies that are running trials on these drugs, and Cogstate's digital assessments, you know, are basically telling 
that um, pharmaceutical company, you know, is this drug, is the cognitive decline increasing, decreasing? Okay. You know, and that's what, that's what their cognitive assessments are doing. And they also provide services uh, to those mainly Alzheimer's clinical trials. And they don't get the long tail after? Well, hold on. Okay. And so the, the three biggest spenders in Alzheimer's disease really are Biogen and Esai, Eli Lilly, uh, Roche is right up there as well. And so those are kind of the three behemoths that have late stage assets that could be commercialized over the next, call it one or two years. Okay. It'd be the first time like it. And so there's, there's been a lot of movement in this space. And so those are the biggest spenders as well. So Esai, their drug um, is going to be up for full approval. It'll be the first one, what, 30 years for Alzheimer's. Um, will be up for full approval. I think the Padufa date is July, sometime in July, July 7th, maybe. And that'll huh. be an exciting time. Esai owns 10% of Cog State. And they oh. also partnered with Cog State to be their global distributor of their cognitive assessments. Oh, interesting. So, so, so to your point, you know, they they started rolling out their cognitive assessments that direct the consumer kind of apt iPad uh, into Asia already. And they're going to start probably doing that into the U.S. upon an approval, hopefully later this year in the U.S. Huh. Um, but a bulk of the 95% of the revenues of Todd State is just supplying that technology to clinical trials. And so that's a $40, $45 million business. Um, there's about $10 million in earnings, great balance sheet, blah, blah, blah. It's probably the best pure play way to play this Alzheimer's R&D commercialization boom that's probably going to happen over the next 10 years, you know, because huh. they're so well positioned. So getting my story of what happened in February. The company is likely going to be, my guess is acquired in the next two years because it's such a unique niche business in this area. And if a, another CRO or if somebody else wants to get a foothold in this space, they would kind of have to buy Cog State. And so what happened was early February, while I was on vacation, the stock started getting bid up aggressively in the market. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you'll, and you'll, and you'll see <laughs> I can the see this. Yes. So it started getting bid up aggressively, which was just kind of a weird time for it to get bid up aggressively. And it, they were just inching it up like five, six cents a day. Yeah, Again, wow. this, the, the stock usually trades 100,000 shares a day. It started trading a million to a million and a half. Shares yeah, man. A day. It looks like it peaked at like six million or something like maybe five, 5.572. Yeah, wow. So they took it up to 240. And then all of a sudden, the next day, it dropped from 240 to 190. Yeah, that's crazy. On, like, on two and a half million shares, the stock the next day opens at 160. So from 240, so it started at 190. They bid it up to 240. Oh, it drops yeah, to sure 190. Enough. It drops to 160. The stock is halted in Australia hmm. for two days. The company then, because they're waiting for the company to let them know what's going on or if they know of anything that would be manipulating the stock price. It takes two days. The company finally files with the Australian Stock Exchange that they were in discussions to be acquired. Oh, um, wow. So some group had, with insider knowledge bid up the stock, bought about 10 or 15 million shares during that run-up. The company announced that on February 18th, the discussion stopped. They couldn't come to terms on price. And that person just dumped it. Yeah. All the stock they just bought. And they drilled it straight down through the ground and it hit 113 yeah. per share. Yeah, it's wild. The chart looks like it's it's like literally straight down. Yeah, it literally went straight down. And so like at 113, it's trading at like 10 times EBIT, like on a very scarce, unique business. Yeah. You know, that 
it just being a it's a forced seller, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, it's crazy that they did that. What a great way to get caught. Yeah, I'm on vacation. I'm just like, oh my goodness, like, it's great. I'm trying to pay attention to my vacation. So anyway, um, <laughs> the, the company finally came out. They put a buyback in place. Uh, you know, they said the insiders are going to start buying. The stock's now like 150, 160. But it, it was just one of the craziest things I've seen probably in 10 years where you had this like obvious insider, not insider, it wasn't an insider, but somebody with insider knowledge was buying aggressively and then just dumped it all over three days. Yeah. You know, just really planning the stock. Um, and it's one of those crazy things that it happens from time to time. I haven't seen anything like this, but to the point of usually once a year, you have the opportunity to buy oftentimes one of the companies in your portfolio where it just gets something just happens and you're able to just, to. and, but again, but just like with this, your reaction time was like one or two days. It's not like you had a month to think about it. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's always the hardest at the bottom because you're like, well, what's going on? You know, blah, blah, blah. you know, yeah, you never right. want to do the. You always want to do the the right thing. Uh, you end up doing the, the wrong thing at the wrong time. So the right thing at the right time. How much lower can it go? Maybe I can get yeah. like super greedy on this. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But that was a that was an interesting February, and so it was for our investors. You know, it's, it was a decent sized position, so I, it was a kind of a fun story to retell in a note to our investors that I sent out a couple of weeks ago. You know, just saying, hey, this is this is the volatility of microcaps. You yeah. know, get ready for your get ready for your nav statement end of February. It's not gonna it's gonna be ugly. So just... yeah, that's right. When uh when my sharp ratio doesn't look good, this is part yeah. of why. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but once again, that's not an endorsement to buy this here or buy it there or ever buy this company. It was just I I like to provide at least one real world example and not me talking yeah. stories about the past. So. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I mean, it looks like, yeah, this, I mean, the enter- they've created a lot of enterprise value over the last four years. Is it going to, um, what about dementia? Is that part of Alzheimer's research or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're pretty much in central nervous system diseases, which you know, could be Parkinson's could be other rare diseases, but it's mainly, you know, Alzheimer's. I think Alzheimer's would probably be 70% of their core business, but that's mainly because of some of these late stage Alzheimer's assets being in phase three trials, which, you know, is more revenue to Cog state than a phase one or phase two trial, huh. you know? So it's, uh, but these trials take four or five years to run. Well, I hope it works, man. That's super encouraging. It makes me feel a little sad for my grandma. She's probably 15 years early in her aging process, but, uh, maybe, yeah. on, maybe only 10, maybe five, who the hell knows, but dementia is tough to watch, man. It's sad. It's awful. Yeah. It's a- it is awful. I mean, I think it's one of the, I'm trying to remember the statistic, is it the only one in the top 10 causes of death that doesn't actually have a drug that helps, basically? You know, and that, oh, interesting. That's, and that's the opportunity you see from the big pharma companies. You know, you have, when Eli Lilly, they have a phase three asset that's going to read out in the summertime. When Eli Lilly, which is, I don't know, 300 billion market cap, maybe 200, 300 billion, when they announce anything positive about this one drug, it can move that stock 10%. Yeah. You know, that's a big move for, that shows how important even any type of drug in this space is. Like when Biogen announces anything about um, Lacatamab, you know, uh, hopefully getting approval or Esai, who's the partner with them, you know, their stocks can like double. Yeah. And they're 30, 40, 40 billion market cap. I mean, these are big opportunities, you know, drugs that could do 15, 20 billion a year. Yeah. That can move a needle for companies like that. So it's a big opportunity set. 
And usually when, whether it's MS or any other disease state, once kind of the first approval happens in that area, there's just a flood of R and D. Yeah, the waterfall opens. Yeah, and so that just that's just increases R and D spend, clinical trials. That's the tailwind to Cog State. You know, there could be like a bunch more trials that are going to be hitting. You know, around an approval by those companies because they need to they need to run more clinical trials to hit different geographical areas and different indications and stuff like that. They immediately just run, you know, sprint. They just launch clinical trials. So it's it's an interesting time. Yeah, um, but Alzheimer's is awful. Well, I, I, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, one of the things that's fun about stock picking and I, I say a lot, like, I don't, I should probably just index, but, um, you know, the thing that I, I love about the game is the research of it. Right. And finding like, you know, something like cog state or whatever, you know, when I went down my deep, I, I did some work on dish. Like I, I like telecom. I think it's interesting. I, I didn't, you know, I don't own Dish or anything, but the research process was fun, right? Like I learned yeah. some stuff about the world and I'm excited to see where it may go. And I don't have a strong view on whether it goes one way or the other, but, uh, you know, at least when it comes to Cog State, I, I really hope that there's a lot of progress because uh, we're all living a lot longer and the mind has a finite life to it. So uh, it would be nice if we don't all live long enough to go, like to lose our minds, that would be a bad outcome. Yes. No, a hundred percent. Well, and, and to your point about it is, it's, it's so fun. Like I was, I would say probably 50% of our portfolios in kind of medical technology. And I think it, the reason why we've ended up being so focused kind of on healthcare is it because I thought out wanting to be focused in healthcare kind of just had the qualitative elements that inflected with the micro capped opportunity set where you can still find small emerging companies that have a moat because their IP, because you know, the product or service that they're pushing through a trial or that they're commercial commercializing that has really good gross margins, have, you know, amazing, you know, operate margins that can sustain 30, 40% organic growth over, you know, five years or more. You know, and it's in an area like healthcare where you don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, GDP dipping, you know, 100 basis points yeah. or whatever. People are still going to be spending in that area if that drug or service is efficacious to that population. So it's, it's, a, it's an area we just ended up kind of finding ourselves in because of the qualitative attributes that are in kind of that area that we have. And there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of companies still going public in medical technology. And so it's an area, it is an area that you see a lot more companies going public um, in healthcare as small public companies in the U S too. Yeah. I, uh, I looked at max site. I thought that was interesting. I like the subscription sort of, um, you know, aspect to a lot of these once, once they get, mm -hmm. you know, embedded in the process, it's uh it's a nice recurring revenue stream. Yeah. It's got yeah, a lot of the characteristics definitely. like at scale, theoretically, they have a lot of the characteristics of really good businesses, right? So the, the potential to win seems quite high uh obviously a yeah. lot of the times market knows that right uh like we've talked about clearpoint that never seems to get like screamingly cheap but you know if they can pull off what they can pull off it'll be good for society and shareholders it'd be great 100 percent, you know and, and yeah, clearpoint's a good example too it's kind of a as a cult like following and rightly so it's doing a lot of good in the world and hopefully we'll continue to do well and so like the the focus there is just what valuation should i pay yeah know? that's right so, yeah, and, I posted that on Microcap Club about it too. I, 
one of our other members kind of made the point that, you know, everybody's waiting for ClearPoint to grow 50% per year, but it very well could just be a company that grows, you know, 20% for 10 years. Yeah. You know, and that's okay. You know, and so, but it just means in the interim, it's like whether the stock should trade at five or 15, you know, depends on who wants to buy or sell 100,000 shares. Yeah. I mean, if it can compound for that long at that rate, the probability that you overpay is, is, seems low to me, right? Especially if margins stay where they are and they're likely to inflect higher. So, but, you know, that's an if. It's a tough spot. You know, I think maybe the biggest difference between one of the big differences in microcap from now versus maybe 24 months ago is if you're a company that, and I say low growth and I mentioned 20%, I like guess decent growth, obviously, but if you're kind of a lower organic growth company that is losing money, you know, your stock can, you, nobody knows what to do with it. You know, it, it's really kind of a, that gray area I found is it, it can be very, you know, the stock could be manipulated a lot lower or higher. It's like, you just don't know where it trades anymore. Where before everybody was just kind of running out their most bullish scenarios and it was an excuse to buy it. Where now it's just like, yeah, but they're still burning, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, yeah. Maybe they get to break even next year or the year after. It's a, that's one of the biggest areas that have changed kind of in micro cap is the willingness to endure through, you know, a 20% grower that continues to bleed money. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, where we were in the market cycle, I think clearly we're going to look back at a lot of those valuations and say that that was uh, silly what people paid. But I'm not convinced that some of the valuations aren't going to make sense, um, you know, over the long term. Uh, I just don't know which ones. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I do think that part of what gets lost in the never sell or looking back at the nifty 50 and, you know, they, they did eventually outperform. I mean, the drawdowns you got to live through are nuts. Uh, so yeah. to your point, like if you're really going to coffee can something, you got to be able to emotionally take being down. And that that's like a lot easier to read about than to live. It is. It's like the volatility. Like, so, <laughs> you know, when, when I was building my capital, like when I was in my 20s and then became a prime full time investor, you know, I was in two, three, four stocks. Right. And so today, managing a fund for outside investors, I'm in four, five, six. You yeah, know, that's, that's very concentrated. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people when they, when they've come on as well, I'm just like, listen, if we are successful, there's going to be a position that becomes 60% of this portfolio and we're not going to sell it just because it grew out of our mandate of being micro cap. You know, that's stupid. Yeah. You know, if the fundamentals are underlying the valuation of that business and the thing is 50% of the, of, of the portfolio, like we're not going to sell it just for the sake of selling it. You know, that's what success looks like is one or two positions dominating this portfolio. But the, but you also have to understand that, like, when that occurs, the portfolio will zig with the market zags, you know, because it will go in line with that largest position. You know, like right now, I'll tell you, like, uh, you'll be horrified by this. Well, you won't be, but other people will. Like, we have a 40, 45% position right now. Oh, it's wow. Gone up. Yeah, good for you. And so one of, the, one of the things that has to be articulated when you have investors, because I'm used to it, but... You have other people that are living through that volatility with me now. Yeah. It's like, listen, when this one stock goes up 10%, it's like a 5% position doubling. Yeah. When, that's this position right. go when this position goes down 10%, it's like a 5% position going to zero. Yeah. You know, and so you just have to be willing to, to understand this portfolio is going to zig when the market zags. We're going to look like heroes when, you know, when the market goes down and we're going to look like idiots when the market goes up. 
because a lot of you know you have to, you're kind of living with the volatility of that large position, you know, over time. So when you have a position that's that size, are you like focused on quarterly numbers or are you more focused on, you know, what are they, I, I'm thinking of when I was talking to Adam Wyden, you know, and he's like, I'm, I'm thinking about what are they doing to position themselves for the next five years and building out the bench and setting up, like, are you worried about missing in a given quarter or are you like more worried about is the underlying structural thesis, right? And are they doing the right things to grow? Because a position that big to your point, I mean... If it's twenty percent overvalued, people are going to feel it when it when it gets down to yeah. fair value. Yeah, and that was one again that so that that was one that during twenty twenty two kind of had a fifty percent drawdown at one point, and we got aggressive and bought it more. And then it you know just like a lot of things doubling off the lows of twenty two, which a lot of things did. But uh, but yeah, I mean to your point, I mean I'm always I'm mainly trying to always look three years out. And there's a lot of puzzle pieces that go into that question that you just asked. Like in this case of this one, I can't say generally what to do, but in case of this one, this is still a very underfollowed, uninstitutionalized company. You know, it's done well, but it trades very illiquid. Um, and there's one analyst that covers it, and they weren't even in the last conference call, even though it's the fastest growing thing in that space. Huh. You know, so institutional discovery still hasn't even even occurred. Yeah, and it's and it's still only trading at the comp peer multiple. Huh. You know, even so, it's so I do take you know all of those puzzle pieces together when I think about you know the position size, you know what the future looks like. But no, I mean that one. It's kind of hard to speak generally about how to. Hold but that makes sense. So the probability. I mean, if it's trading in the in line with comps. There's some reasonable argument on a DCF. It's underfollowed institutionally. The probability that this is egregiously overvalued is probably fairly low, given where it's probably going. Right? Is Correct. maybe the way you're thinking yeah. about it. Yeah, my, I'm a big fan of getting in things before the first wave of discovery occurs, and this hasn't had that first wave of discovery. Hmm. The first wave of discovery is powerful because it's a new story that institutions have never heard before that don't have a reason not to buy it. Yeah. You know, and so that first initial discovery move that can be a hundred to a thousand percent higher, you know, it can occur because, you know, it's a new thing. Kind of go back to the rising stars kind of aspect of my investing philosophy. Um, yeah. And so that gets, that gets pretty, it, it's pretty exciting that, you know, this company's done well. It's probably the fastest growing in their area, in that industry. And there's still only one analyst that covers it. You know, it's 50% insider board controlled. You know, and they're just crushing it, you know, and I know it's only a matter of time until until other institutions, other analysts bring on coverage. Yeah. Until people want to participate in this thing that they need to participate in because it's the fastest growing thing in their area. Yeah, that's neat. And you trust the the management team, obviously. Yeah. yeah. That's exciting, man. That's the part of it that usually the position size also correlates with the amount of trust I have, you know, with the management team itself. You know, it's it's almost less about risk reward than it is about how much do I trust these folks. I mean, I think conviction. You know, I'm a conviction investor, so conviction is a lot like building the relationship with anybody, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a friend, or whether whatever it is. It can only be built over time. And so, like this position with this company, I've known the CEO for several years, and just like with any relationship, your conviction grows the most in the bad times. Yeah, because you get to see how they react, good or bad. And you know whether you should be doubling down or just cutting loose. Hmm. Um, 
And, you know, in this circumstance, you know, it's, they've proven to be winners, you know, in the worst of times. Yeah. Isn't it funny how you find out who people are when the, when the chips are actually down, you know, anybody, everybody can get along when things are good, but it's, uh, it's when they're not that you find out, do I really want to go to war with this person? It's how like relationships and conviction just, whether it's stocks or relationships, it just takes time. Yeah. You know, it just, and like, I still feel like the biggest asset to any stock picker that's a long only quality focused stock picker is the relationships you build up over time with your colleagues, with CEOs, with other investors. Um, that's the biggest asset. I mean, and the end game there is finally me after doing this for 20 years, you know, I couldn't have supercharged it any quicker, you know, because you just need that time to to share those experiences with everybody in that network so they can see who you truly are and that you can see who they are where yeah. you can you can you can allow them to take too much from you to see who they really are and that that's okay you know you know how you know where they stand you yeah know, and vice versa so it's like it just takes uh takes time to go to go through that and then like the from a just a purely investment standpoint you know sort of the i think the the thing that makes you feel the proudest is after so many a decade or two decades to where you're the first call yeah you know whether it's a a ceo that wants to do it again or an investor that you've that's a good colleague of yours like where you're the first call they see so much value in you because of what you provide with them over the years they appreciate you so much that you're the first call yeah you know and and that's when it gets cool like that feedback loop and that's just makes you want to do it more you know just be that person that you that you want to befriend and have a relationship with yeah you know, to keep that flywheel going yeah i like that i like that a lot uh it's funny somebody asked me they're like what are, what are you trying to accomplish out of the podcast i was like uh if you listen i think you can probably piece together that i've accomplished most of what i tried to accomplish like it's a pretty good network i built up and you know i think on average it's a group of people that i i stay in contact with and we talk and it's like super fun I, yeah. it's funny i used to think i wanted it to be like some big show now i now i actually could care less which probably means there's a chance it gets bigger than I want it to. <laughs> and that's how it was with Microcap Club too. You know, when I started when I started in twenty eleven, it was I mean that site was costing me twenty grand a year. I was a full time private investor. And, you know, there was no monetization of it. That didn't happen until six years later. It was me mainly talking to myself on a private forum. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lo- it was a lonely place. And I was like, well <laughs> Ian, why are you paying twenty thousand dollars to talk to yourself <laughs> on the internet? Don't don't bother me. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Just don't worry about it. What? You know, like, I always believe. I always believe in like at least having a professional. You know, yeah. like the outward face of it. Yeah, like, make yourself look more professional than what you really. Yeah, are. that's right. Um, I'm the so founder that, of Microcap Cub. Well, what is that? It's yeah. me talking to myself behind a paywall. Shut up. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's me in my echo chamber. You know, pay up. <laughs> I like it. But it took. I mean, it, it took a solid six or seven years. Uh, you know, for it to even turn into anything, yeah. Uh, you know, and so and now after twelve years, it's it's really cool what it's become, and it could have never became that way unless I didn't care from the beginning to not monetize it. Yeah, you know. So, you yeah. know, who else has built a really good community is John Mahalkovich at, at Manual of Ideas. I re- I really uh, I admire what he's done, and I and I like how he's pivoted. I used to get the the um, he used to send out a paper book, and I missed the paper book. John, if you're still if you're listening to this paper books. Um, but he's got like an email thing going on now. That's really good. And, and the, the conferences that he puts together are great. It's, it's 
I don't know. It's really fun to see people build communities around them. And I, and I think like micro clap, micro cap club and, uh, manual of ideas are, are two that, uh, you know, when I think about the vision for whatever it is that I'm building, that they like, they resonate very, very strongly with where I think I want this all to go. I think very highly of John as well. I think what he's built is incredible. And I think, I think to your point, you know, I can tell you're in a good spot, Bill, just because so many people look at what other people are doing or achieving or accomplishing, and they just get jealous or envious or whatever you want to call it. And you know, you know, you're in a good spot yourself when you can genuinely look at somebody else that's achieving something and feel good for them. Yeah. You know, where you don't, where you don't have that, you know, you don't have that, well, you know, vindictive nature to it. Like, well, they don't deserve that, or I could have done that, you know, whether it's in the business side or, or an investing side, you know, to where people look at like, Nick Sleep and you know they held Berkshire, Costco, and Amazon for 13 years, crushed the market by 800 percent. And people look at it and be like, "Well, you know, I I could have done that. Well, you didn't. Yeah, that's you know, right. You didn't. You didn't hold those stocks for 13 years and crush the market by 800 percent. And what does your current you know, portfolio so, look like? Right? Like, yeah, are you trying yeah, to do yeah. it? Or are you just talking right. shit? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I I tell you, man. Uh, watching my grandma pass away. Uh, I mean, she hasn't passed away yet, but wa- watching her go through the decline it's uh it's just really put a lot of stuff in perspective i don't know i've I've really you know part of i part of why i'm stepping back from value after hours a little bit is i i was right i wrote to toby and jake and i said you know at this stage i feel like it it almost introduces because i i get kind of like angry at, at times on and it's unfair but i do uh i get like frustrated with the same conversation and uh and i said like i think it's got downside risk to our friendship which is like the most important thing to me. And two, like, I don't even know why I'm doing it. Like some of this is like attention seeking. And I, I'm, I don't, I'm kind of past all that. And I, I really think, uh, I just really think watching her age and, and watching my kids grow up simultaneously, you know, kind of like the juxtaposition of those things. It's just kind of got my, I don't know. It's got my head focused, I think in the right areas. Um, it's it's funny because I shared some of the, you know, I tweet sometimes and sometimes I'm a little intoxicated when I do. But uh, some people are like, oh, are you having a midlife, midlife crisis? I'm like, actually, I think I'm like getting things in perspective here. I think that's what's really going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, life's all about becoming less selfish. You know, when, when you're only now when I look back before I was married, you realize how much time you had. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you doesn't mean you wasted that time, but it's just. You know, then when you get married, you know, you obviously have to devote time and effort to the marriage. And then when you have kids, you have to devote time and effort to the marriage and kids. And so you just have less time to do the other things. And so you just have to force yourself to be more efficient and focused on the things you would accomplish outside the family so it doesn't destroy the family. Yeah. So it's just all that, all that balancing, all that balancing act of that is, is, is hard and everybody goes through it. And that's kind of the good thing about it is not that misery loves company, but we're, we're all going, <laughs> we're all going through the same battles man, you know? yeah. so it's on every level. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I was neglecting a lot of the stuff that really matters, chasing some stuff that really doesn't. Nah. Uh, yeah. I'm uh, hopefully, hopefully that's the correct assessment and hopefully it's over. Uh, but you know, pivot as life goes on. Yeah. Well, that was that was heavy. <laughs> That's all right. That was yeah, thank you. That's it's my therapy for the week. Uh, 
Well, man, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm glad you came on to chat. Thank you. And uh, I'm, yeah. I'm really glad that we've stayed in touch. You're, uh, you know, you're somebody that I, I love talking to. Uh, every time we chat or whatever on the interwebs, I, uh, I smile a little. So thanks for coming back on the show and thanks for staying in touch. No, thanks for, thanks for the invite. And I look forward to you hosting golf event at some point. Yeah, we can throw down. Uh, you and me both, man. <laughs> you and me both. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was going to be April. I had somebody that was helping me. And uh, by helping, I mean that we completely we completely dropped the ball on that. So uh, hopefully, hopefully in the fall. Some of the best reads are, you know, you probably read this one. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I actually just, I read this like three times. I just pulled out, started reading again, or, or the, the elements of scoring with Raymond Floyd. Like these are amazing books about golf that are amazing books about investing yes you know and so for you and i that are golfers that like to invest um there's huge lessons in in these golfing books just about that that are very applicable to to investing you can kill two birds with one stone by reading them yeah learn a little about golf and investing dude the thing about golf that i think is so applicable to life is like it is so easy to ruin your round on any given hole and it's so hard to get back on four stairs. And, you know, I don't care if that's a diet. I don't care if it's a relationship that you're in. Like, you know, you lose, you go off the handle or do something really wrong to somebody. And like, it takes years to, to come back from that. And, yeah. uh, and also, you know, you got to be compassionate with people and understand they're going to make mistakes and, and life isn't a game of perfect, but, um, I, I don't know. I, I, the older I get, the more I understand the, the saying golf is life. Yeah. Well, and it's also, you know, one of the main, one of the other correlations is just the, the mental aspect of golf. It's the same, same as investing, you know, and just like you said, forgetting the bad shots, you know, and just yeah. thinking about the shot you're playing, you know, the, you know, a lot of, a lot of people look at um, deliberate practice you know, and that idea of deliberate practice and it's very applicable to sports, you know, and really it's just the idea of, you know, practicing, getting immediate feedback from a coach, you know, repetition experience, just doing that over and over and over again. It's like the 10,000 hour thing. Yeah. All that stuff built into one, you know, and, and people try to apply that to investing as well. You know, the difference with investing though, is just the feedback loops are so much longer. Yep. You know, it's like you and I go out and hit a bad shot. Like, okay, we hit a bad shot. We can hit the next one immediately. Yeah, that's you know, right. We go out, we play a bad note on the guitar or piano, whichever note I would play. We dance. I don't play either one. But, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, like to yeah, you get an immediate. Your ear tells yeah. you you messed that up, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But with investing, it's like you might not know you're wrong for three months, three years you know, or whatever. And then even if you're right, you might be right for the wrong reason. Well, cable, I've owned cable for five years. I still don't know if I was right or wrong or if I'm right yeah. or wrong. I mean, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I think that's what makes it different and harder with investing is because you don't have the immediate feedback loops to what you did was wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, and only retroactively, probably for 10 years looking back, you realize, oh, that was dumb. You know, and you don't want to waste your whole life knowing that you were doing something dumb for a few years, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it kills you mentally, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I think, I think the other thing is there, like there are mistakes along the journey, but like that doesn't, I don't know. You got to just keep playing, you know? Yeah. Yep. And, and not, not take it to the, you know, the next T or whatever, uh, to the next idea. And conversely, like when things go really well, I think 
you know, I, I could have used to remind myself in this in 2021 a little bit more, but to not get too, uh, you know, amped up that they're going well and to not, not kind of buy my own bullshit would have gone a little bit further, but you know, whatever, that's how bubbles are. Yeah. And I think it's, it's probably golf is especially the way I play golf with, which I'm probably a 15 handicap now. I used to be like a seven, but you know, is I've been, I know I'm going to hit bad shots and it's the same thing with micro cap investing where it, I know I'm going to be wrong with some of these things. It doesn't matter if, if it checked all the right check boxes or the right frameworks are in place, there's still, you know, 30, 40% chance that I'm wrong and wrong can mean I lose money or make money, but I know I'm going to be wrong. Um, and not being bogged down in making a decision, trying to be perfect. Yeah. You know, trying to find the perfect situation because a lot of these small emerging companies, none of them are perfect. You know, in fact, the bet that you're making is that, you know, they can fix some of the hair that you see on them yeah. over time. Um, and you're just going to be right or wrong. I mean, even on a, port- on a portfolio level, you know, we're in like six companies, but, you know, we added eight in 2022 and we took all of them off by year end. Huh. You know, and, and I think it's important to not be afraid to take small small positions and grow with them over time. And some years you're not going to add any real meaningful positions and other times you'll find that one every two or three years where you can belly up the bar on. Yeah. Uh, but you can't, you can't be afraid to pull the trigger because oftentimes like you don't, you don't get to know the management team or the business until you own it. You know, the management team treats you differently when they know you own the business, you know? And so you, I'm you know not being afraid to, to buy a little bit and look wrong, you know, and, it's just part of the way my strategy is uh, having some small positions, taking them on and off, being okay if that was a one or two percent net drag in the portfolio. That's the price of progress. Yeah, you know, yeah, that makes sense. With microcap or something a liquid, the thing that's tough is is when you're wrong. How do you get out of it? Like, do you blow out of it, move the stock, or do you just kind of like trickle yeah. out? Because you don't want to stay in something that's wrong, but you also don't want to like, I don't know, give it away, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's just, too, it's about, you know, it's where Jake's tool comes in, just journaling about this stuff, too. You know, like we were even quantifying out how wrong you are. Like last year, we were wrong, probably a net 24% drive in the portfolio. Um, we're always going to have losers in our portfolio. We're always going to have things we're going to lose money on. But there's a difference between losers and mistakes. Yeah. Mistakes are the things that bug me because that is taking a loser and making it worse because of you acting or not acting hmm. on that situation. And so when you look at it, like even quantitatively, it's like, okay, you know, our losers were a net 24% drag in the portfolio, but my mistakes were half of that. Like, that's not something I'm okay with. Yeah. Being self-aware enough to identify that those were on you, not the market or not even the situation. That was additional detraction that you yourself and put on the portfolio and your investors and being honest with them and yourself about it and trying to get better over time. Yeah. Interesting. I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're not thinking about things like that, then it's impossible to get better. Right. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, man. I appreciate yeah. your time. Uh, I'm going to follow up with you to pay you so that I can attend the event that you will be throwing <laughs> and help you cover your costs. And I'm super amped to meet those guys. Those, that'll be that'll be good. It's going to be an amazing event. It's probably the one I've been most excited about in a long, long time. That's so, cool. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I hope you can make it out. Oh, I'll make yeah. it. I mean, okay. I love to party in Schaumburg. Who doesn't? I, Is I it know. in Schaumburg? Yeah, 
It's uh, yeah, I think it's just south of was it a Tasca? All right, yeah, yeah. same diff, yeah, somewhere same around. diff. Yeah. All right, yeah, we'll we'll be around O'Hare, raging it yeah. up. <laughs> In a second-rate uh, Western hotel. That's right. As as hotels around that area are, uh, but it'll yeah. be fun. All right, man. All right, man. Have a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you.